Hi, everybody. This is Dr. Eric Corum, founder of AIM7. Welcome back to The Blueprint, where we distill cutting-edge science, leadership, and life skills into simple tactics optimized for your busy lifestyle and goals. Today, I'm excited to bring you a classic episode that I recorded back in 2020 with my good friend, Clint Bruce. Clint is one of my favorite people of all time, and in his second appearance on the show, The Process of Pursuing Elite, is one of the most downloaded episodes of all time. Clint is a former Navy Special Warfare officer, a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy, decorated athlete, and seasoned entrepreneur. In this episode, Clint details how to leverage angles, allies, and advantages to achieve outsized outcomes in life. Clint also impacts the concept of championing and how the differentiating factor for the elite in any field is precision and endurance. We also discuss gaggles, groups, teams, and tribes, and so much more. This is a fun episode, and it is chocked full of nuggets of wisdom. So now, it's time to lean in and learn from the best. Clint, it's great to have you on today. Awesome. It's great to be here. Clint, I want to come out the gate. I want to ask you, have you always been a competitor? So, I would tell you, I've always been competitive, And I I don't know, I don't want to thin slice and get into too much semantics here. Like competitor to me means like you always want to win. Uh, Competitive means to me, I always want to be involved in something that's trying and testing me and where I need other people with me. So I've always been competitive. I've always, I've always, but I've always kind of used the um, context of competing with other people to try to beat. The way I tell my daughters is, Y is greater than or equal to Y2, which is you are greater than or equal to yesterday's you. So I just found a way to compete with yesterday's me is to compete alongside other people. And so I've always been competitive. I haven't always had to win. I like winning, but I want to win more. I want to raise a trophy and I don't care who scores. You know. Where was this nurtured? Well, I I just think I think I've always been around it. You know, I I grew up in an environment where competing was a... uh, I mean, that's just how you grew up. When we were growing up, you had to play outside. You know, you had to play outside. So it was it was kickball. It was uh, Red Rover, Red Rover. It was as a, I was a chunky kid, so I was the only g- game I was really picked first for was Red Rover, Red Rover because force equals mass times acceleration. So like <laughs> I was picked last on anything that had to do with like real skill, but tug of war and Red Rover, I was the guy. Right? I was you the and wedge- me both, Clint. I was the wedge breaker. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I think I was just always in, I was, I grew up in an environment in Arkansas where you're just outside and you were playing. And when you have 10 kids, you're going to split in half and turn it into some kind of game. Right. Did you say 10 kids? No, no, not 10. If you have 10 oh. kids, not, oh, okay. not, not 10 siblings, if you have 10 siblings. That becomes a fight. That's anyway, <laughs> so. so how did you, so you grew up in Arkansas. Where, what part of Arkansas? Did I, you grew grow up in, in? I grew up in Little Rock, Little Rock, Arkansas. Okay. How did you end up? Going from Little Rock, Arkansas to the Naval Academy. Yeah, yeah. It's just my whole life is kind of like this Forrest Gumpian kind of stumble upwards sort of thing. Uh, now, I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas. Great family. My father was in commercial insurance. <clears throat> Excuse me. Had an opportunity to come down here to Dallas. And so moved down to Dallas when I was in middle school. Okay. And um, just, you know, I loved football long before it loved me. I loved uh, being competitive. I loved being involved in hard things and, and finding my niche inside that space. And, and I love being a great teammate. I just have always enjoyed being part of a, 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 a bigger organization. I've always enjoyed doing stuff where you need other people to actually get it done. And so just, uh, you know, went to 
South Carolina high school, played football, was in theater too. I was, I was in theater because uh, I remember one of my freshman coaches stopped, told me to stop wasting his and my time and focus on theater. And I was like, you know what? I'll go to theater because there's cute girls there. But I'm just going <laughs> to play, play football just to make you mad. Then all of a sudden the game just clicked to me. Halfway through my junior season, I got on the field and I was like, oh, I can do this and, and never really left it after that. And then, um, you know, I had the opportunity to play at a, a lot of Division One schools. Um, my senior year, my father fell ill. And, you know, this isn't the way he said it, but this is the way I hear it now. Uh, as I was sitting with him in his hospital, he would say, hey, you have to make a 40-year decision and not a four-year decision about where you take your, your, your talents. And you have to go to a place that's going to put you in a position to take care of you know, your mom and your brother and your sister and because you're the oldest son. And uh, I'd always loved the Naval Academy. I just, I've always loved the Army-Navy game. I, I, I did. I, I just, I, I, I feel that game is special. I was interviewed one time about it, and I said, you show me another game where everybody playing is willing to die for everybody watching, and I'll tell you that we have company in this kind of what's the greatest rivalry. And um, I just wanted to play there. And I had this uh, – <laughs> it's, it's, it's a little bit embarrassing, but it's kind of not. Since this whole quarantine all this other stuff's happened, I've had just unbelievable amount of time with my girls, and it's been so fun. And my oldest and I – uh, she mentioned the TV show Magnum and she was talking about this new one. I'm like, no, the new one doesn't exist. We're going back. <laughs> so we went, we were, we were on this whole Magnum PI marathon. And what's been really cool is there's a moment in one of the first seasons where they kind of revealed that Magnum PI played football at the Naval Academy and was a Navy SEAL. And I had this, this kind of recall of, of sitting with my father when I was young and, and watching Magnum P.I. and looking at my dad like, hey, dad, I'm going to go play football at the Naval Academy and be a Navy SEAL. And he's like, all right. So, so, <laughs> so, so that's kind of, I mean, it's, it's. Uh, you, got the, you got the beard. Where's the Ferrari and the, and the whole I, You know deal? what? I've never, I've never, I, I've never had a Ferrari. I, I got stuck in a Ferrari one time. Those are really low. They're not easy to get out of. <laughs> And I actually poured the, the poor valet. I pulled him in there with me. He tried to help me out. I was like, nope, you're coming in here with me, pal. We're, just get out of the way. I'll roll out. That's awesome. But yeah, that's how I went to Naval Academy. I, for me, it was a place where I could compete at a really high level, be part of a game that I'd respected and admired my whole life, do what I told my dad I'd do when I was young, and uh, uh, position and provision for my family in a way that very few other schools can allow you to do. When you went to the Naval Academy – they weren't a winning tradition at the time. No, no. What what happened there? What was that transformation that took place, and how did that happen? Uh, I, I think it was this perfect storm of personalities that were used to winning and were used to doing whatever it took to win. And I think there was probably a nucleus of a few of us in a class uh, ahead of us and, and a class behind us. And there were amazing people the minute I checked in. Right. But I think we had a nucleus of people who just weren't going to lose and weren't going to be part of a program that we weren't going to be proud of for the rest of our lives. And, and I think that started, I went to the Naval Academy prep school, which is kind of like our red shirt equivalent. And there was a core group of about seven or eight of us that were just like, Hey, we're going to win a bowl game. And, and I remember as a freshman, I would break the team down during practice bowl bound. I was just like, Hey, do not be surprised when we're playing at a bowl game because that's that's what we all came here to do. And and so when we did, when we played a bowl game my senior year, when they announced it, I was like, yeah, I mean, it's what we said we were going to do. Like, why is anybody surprised? We've been saying bowl bound since 1993, and only only we believed it. So so we're, we're where we said we'd be. 
Wow. Now, like you were a captain of that team, correct? Yeah, yeah. Well, I was – we had two captains, myself okay. and Ben Fay. Uh, ben Fay, magnetic, charismatic. He is, he is the antithesis of me, quarterback. And and uh, he wouldn't let me – all he would let me do was call the coin toss because I was, I, was <laughs> I was a different kind of person when I put my helmet on. I was just – you know, I, I grew up watching Jack Lambert, Dick Buckus, and and Jack Ham, and I mean, I, I came from that school, Midwest Mike. I came from that school of Midwest Mike. I didn't have a front tooth, got hit by a drunk driver, crushed the side of my face, and I mean, I was prototype. And uh, it's funny, someone pointed this out the other day. I, I'd forgotten about this, but during Parents' Day, my senior year, Ben Ben and I came out last because we were the captains, right? And I came out last, and. Apparently, I just handed the rose to my mom and turn, shook her hand and turned around. <laughs> and and uh, Ben Faye, he's like, come here, Diane. He put his arm around her. Mm-hmm. And uh, the radio guy apparently said, look at that. Clint Bruce just shook his mom's hand. And the other guy said, if, he'd had, if she'd had the ball, he'd have hit her. <laughs> that's just, I mean, that's just kind of the way I was. I was I was so offended that someone could come to our stadium and think they would beat us. I mean, and, and it's interesting because I had conversations with guys I played against. They were like, man, you're really mean. I said, man, I wasn't mean. You were just in the way. Like, there, uh-huh. there's this place we said we were going to go, and you're in the way. And I just was offended that you thought you could be in the way. And uh, But, I, you know, that place that place is a special place. I mean, I think God really protected me by putting me in a position where I was this, you know, this big, strong kid from Garland, Texas, and I had a lot of anger. And, um, you know, right after my father passed away, and next thing you know, you're not going to talk trash to a silver star recipient Marine Corps force recon officer that's in your chest. You're like, I, I, I apologize. Perhaps I misunderstood you, sir. <laughs> so, so or, I mean, I was just surrounded by such structure and stru- such valor and such a uh, history. I mean, you know, my, as a plebe, I was in the Stockdale room, you know, I, so I was, I was living in the same room that Jim Stockdale did. And, and uh, so there was a weight of that, that I think allowed me to, just stay above myself. I heard you tell a story once about how like you guys decided that if somebody fell on the ground, somebody was going to be there to pick them up. Like yeah. you weren't going to tell, unpack that a little bit. Yeah. My deal was, Hey, people help each other up. And, and so it was like, you can tell uh, we kind of had a culture to where very few people got up under their own power. So as soon as it plays over, you're up and your head's on a swivel and you're looking for a teammate that's getting up off the ground and you're sprinting over them to help them up. And like, for me, the thing about that is like when someone helps you up, that's, that's welcome you, you back into the, in, into the tribe, regardless of what the outcome of that play was. And when you're helping someone up, you can tell people the truth too. You can be like, you got burned on that one. Like, yeah, I know. Right. I mean, like, <laughs> you can be honest because you're saying, Hey, I want you back. That's why I'm helping you up. And, and, and it's just a really, there's an acknowledgement of acceptance and desire to be with somebody that allows you to say things that we don't always want to hear. Like, Hey, you got run over. Yeah, I know but you're helping me up, which means you want me in this huddle again, which means we got another play. Let's go. You said a word there that's big. In 2010, I heard you talk about this and changed me. And I like, I I told you before, I have the CD recordings, the CDs, right? Oh, wow. I want you to unpack what it means to be a part of a tribe. Yeah, yeah. So for me, that's kind of, to harken back to that earlier question about being competitive, uh, for me being competitive and associating yourself with other people who are willing to compete for the same thing you said you were, that for me is the highest form of coexistence is to be tribal, right? And so when I talk to you guys back then and when I talk to people now, I say when you see groups of people, you can almost always 
call them one of four things. They are gaggles, they are groups, they are teams, or they are tribes, right? And what makes these things different is kind of what yokes them together. So a gaggle is yoked together by misery, like wrong place, wrong time, wrong choice. A group is united by preference. We like the same stuff. Team is united by purpose. And a tribe is united by conviction. And there's a distinction here. Team is a declaration of intent, right? It is pre-adversity, pre-resistance opinion, right? But then once a adversity or resistance kicks in, you have to figure out if it's a conviction or not. T. Lawrence once said, an opinion can be argued with, but a conviction is best shot because conviction always produces action. And so for me, that's why I love sports. I love sports because it is just this human tapestry played out in a defined timeline. So every team in the NFL says the same thing in August. They all do. We, we've been with them, you know, and, 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 and I think a lot of them mean it when they say it. But you don't know what you're saying necessarily until the adversity kicks in, right? And then you find out whether that was your opinion or your conviction. And what happens is in December and January, only the men who meant it are still playing because it has to become your conviction, right? And so there's this tug of war between attrition on one side and conviction on the other. And resistance and adversity makes you declare this your conviction. And if it's only your opinion, you're going to degrade towards attrition and go away, right? So for me, being tribal is it's critical. I mean, it's, it's, it's how I know how to live and it's, and it's what I desire to be a part of and be around and try to work towards. So what is the failing then? I mean, let's just, you brought up the NFL. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you played football in the NFL and then decided to take a career diversion, which we'll talk about a little bit later. I had, to, uh, had a little bit of time in the league. All teams are talented. Yeah, sure. And the league is set up to make it's a, to make you a 500 team. So yeah. the draft order, the cap salary, yeah. they make your schedules, the more you win. Now, outside of having a quarterback, which when you have an elite quarterback, it kind of changes things, but there's a bunch of other dudes that have a say on every play. Yeah. Yeah. So what is it? So, so for me, and this, and this is what I always loved about football and, and, and the way I describe it sometime is so I get this presentation called the achieving average, and it's a little bit of a play on words. It's not about achieving average outcome. It's about how average people tend to achieve. I'm, I'm a pretty average person, but I managed to be a part of these really neat achievements. And one of the reasons I think that is, is because angles, allies, and advantages, right? So I, my gift was, was not being gifted. I was a fifth string fullback in eighth grade at Brandenburg Middle School which wouldn't have been that bad, but there were only three other fullbacks. So like they were going to skip a whole position on the depth chart, which is pretty hurtful. And, um, but I love the game. So I just had to decide when I was in eighth grade, if I was willing to uh, just be a great teammate. If all I had from my time in football was saying I was a great teammate, was that going to be enough? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. It's going to be enough. But then what happened is, um, you know, I, I just, I wasn't content to be a scout team player. But that's just what I was, man. So I played all these different positions on the field, right? This is, you know, first team, second team roll out, scout team stays in it the whole time, right? So I don't know how many hundreds of reps I had at every different position on the football field as a scout team player, right? And then obviously that kind of manifested itself into some, some game experience. And what I tell people now is it's not that talent isn't real. Talent is real and treasure is real, but those are advantages. And if you have angles and allies, but you, you're disadvantaged. You, you still got two thirds of the equation. So talent and treasure is one third of the equation, right? And we bet the farm on that at service academies. We, we invest heavily in, in angles, which are 
peak proficiency, right? It's like it, it, no wasted motion. And you can look to nature of that. Like a great white shark looks lazy till it's coming at you. You're like, oh, that's what that was built for, right? Lion, lion looks lazy till it's coming at you. You're like, oh, that is perfection in motion. It, it is, and, and, and with your exposure to the special operations community, one of the things you hear us say all the time is slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And if you're willing to, to take your time to learn something well, then when you apply that, it's going to be smooth and smooth is going to be fast, right? So angles are peak proficiencies, right? And that's what you really see in the league. Is, and, and that's why I think the eyes, you know, the eyes go open. Is very few people have seen such <laughs> deployment of angles, right? I mean, just the fluidity of some of these athletes, the, the reduction of friction. I mean, just... When you see people curve when they're running, like a European motorbike, you know, that's so, so for me, angles are understanding your craft, right? Being a, being a craftsman. Uh, allies are being around people who mean what they say as much as you mean what you say. This is where it becomes tribal, right? And then if you have angles and allies, then you can defeat someone who has more advantages. And, and, and we, we bet the farm on that. And, and so for me, that's why tribalism is so important. My part is to be a perfect craftsman, right? That's, I have to master my angles and reduce inefficiencies on my one position on the field. Ten of the guys around me. And if 11 of us have, have, have really cultivated precision and reduction of inefficiencies for the same purpose, we're pretty tough to beat when you put that together, right? Because you think about it, and there's what, 75, 76 snaps per game on a side. And so... You know, you have 76 opportunities to be a craftsman, right? And then one of the things I think you've heard me talk, I, I use this term called championing, right? And for me, it's a verb, you know, swimming, you're a swimmer. If you're driving, you're a driver. We're defined by our actions. And if you're consistently producing champions, championships, then you're championing, right? And, and the way I describe it is you got to have passion, talent, precision, and endurance. And the higher up you go, the less passion and talent matter. Not because they don't matter. It's just everybody's got them, right? So what's left is precision and endurance. And I, for me, precision isn't being right more. That's an academic statement. For me, precision is being wrong less, right? And endurance is being wrong less for longer than your competition. And so like what I've always told my folks is like, hey, just make new mistakes. Not make no mistakes. Because when you're working with genius, which in the special operations community, you're, you're dealing with geniuses all the time, uh, whether they're physical in the NFL, you're dealing with guys that have physical genius. And, and many of them have an intellectual genius that they just, they didn't realize. But when you tell a genius, make no mistakes, you inhibit and stifle their creativity and nothing evolves, right? Like if Barry Sanders is your running back, you don't tell Barry Sanders, like running the A gap. And if someone's there, just fall down. You just go, hey, Barry, run left. And then Barry runs left and you go, well, other people can do that. That's a new play. And then, nope, no one else can do that. That's just Barry, right? But the game evolves, right? <laughs> right. So my idea is like make new mistakes because you're allowing genius to create and innovate. And then the second part of that is you're calling people to be a pro. Because if you're making new mistakes, in order to make new mistakes, what do you got to do? Well, you got to understand your old ones and you got to inventory. You got to understand the environmentals. And, and you and I have both been around this like, you can see certain players. This, that's where I think Deion Sanders is, is a lot of ways misunderstood or not fully understood. Like he was a total craftsman. Like Ed Reed, total craftsman. Ray Lewis, those dudes, you know, they're watching film. They can look at a play and reverse engineer it to practice three days before and figure out where they built a bad habit that got them beat on that play. Yes. There's a level of precision there. And you see it. I mean, you've been in the league. There's players and there's pros. And players are guys that are happy to be in the league and pros are guys that want to stay there. Right. 
I remember asking Brian Cushing, you know, his evolution as a player, because you know this, that NFL players, you know, they run the, the 40 at the combine, mm-hmm. and that is the fastest they will ever be. Every. They're yeah. probably faster when they came in as a freshman. Yeah. But, like, Ray Lewis was really slow at the end of his career. But yeah. if you were to watch him from an angle behind, he was moving before yeah. the snap. Yeah. So I asked Brian, like, what his goal was. He was like, as, as my career went on, I wanted to be the guy that was reacting faster. That's right. And, and that's anticipation. That's understanding. That's, that's right. And so, yeah, when you got a group of people that are doing that in unison, it's called right. sharing the mental model. Everybody yeah. understands what's going on. You yeah. don't have to talk about it. Right. Then you have this, it's deadly. It's amazing. Oh yeah. It's like going back to tribalism. One of the ways I kind of talk about this is teams row tribes flow. Like there's an, you, you, there's a, there's a, 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 a kind of a mechanical nature to a team, right? It, you can see it. It's like this and this and this, when you see a tribe, there's a, there's a fluidity to it. There's a flow to it and it is powerful to watch. Right. And, you know, I, I look at the Super Bowl a few years back where you see um, passion, talent, precision, and endurance, Atlanta Falcons versus the Patriots. Right. And that second half was a demonstration of precision and endurance the Patriots made less mistakes for longer than their competition. Right. And they began to flow and the Falcons were like, what is happening here? There's a gear and a speed and a flexibility and an adaptiveness that, that we just don't have. Right. And it's not a character issue. It's, it's a function of exposure and rehearsal, right? Exposure and rehearsal. So man, you're hitting on some big stuff here. I'll never forget we were practicing in the Superdome and we're, it was the Texans and we were practicing with the saints mm-hmm. and uh, Sean Payton, of course, Bill Belichick is kind of the godfather, right? Yeah. He's the Don. And uh, there was a section in practice where he had gotten something from Bill evidently. And what we did was, is both teams went out of the field and uh, they would call, uh, I think O'Brien and Sean worked on this together, but Neither offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, players knew it was going to happen. They said, all right, it's here's situation. It's third and L, let's say third and five or the plus 25, this much time on the clock. The point differential is this. Coordinators call play, everybody line up, go. And what they did is they put them in unbelievably, like unpredictable situations where they had to think and respond really, right. really fast. Right. And people talk about Bill Belichick and situational football where the team – they're so situationally aware that they can use their skill set and adapt it for the situation. What would you call that in, in uh, Clint Bruce world? Well, no, I mean, that, you know, if you think about Belichick, Belichick grew up surrounded by warders. He yes. grew up on the yard of the Naval Academy. He grew up shagging footballs for Roger Staubach. His babysitters were Vietnam veterans and, and, and you know, Korean. I mean, so it's, he, he attacks the game the same way we attack battle, right? And there's this really great book, and I'm sure you know the author, you know, Thinking Fast and Slow. And, and you know, I'm reading this book right now called Range, which is a really good book, but it basically vilifies specialization too early, right? Because, and he uses chess as an example, and there's a difference between tactics and strategy. And, and one of the reasons we train so hard is it's kind of like a Pareto's law. 80% of every play is the same, right? And the more you've rehearsed for that 80% commonality, the more you free up your RAM for that 20% that's going to be unique about that play, right? So, you know, thinking fast and slow, fast is responding with like contingency tactics. Like if you say malfunction drill, 
tap back bang. It's like, I don't even think about it. And because I don't want to think about it, I freed up my ability to consume all these million little things that make this a, a malfunction drill inside of this. And it's interesting when you look at chess, one of the things uh, the book Range was talking about is Kasparov, you know, Deep Blue beat Kasparov in chess, right? But Kasparov then created a scenario where the computer and a human would team up. And then eventually someone who had less tactical knowledge about chess, but more strategic awareness could beat a master in a computer with a computer, right? And AI really has a hard time competing in, um, what's this? It's this on, it's online star, um, not Star Wars. It's a, it's an online world, like a World of Warcraft. Yeah. And it talks about rehearsing in kind environments and rehearsing in wicked environments. And if you grew up in a kind environment in the sense that it's kind of your advantage in the sense that there's not a lot of distractions, but the operation to, but the ability to just kind of dive deeply into learning, right? Well, putting someone in a wicked environment, you're affirming that tactical response, but you're training that brain to go, hey, what's different? You know, zoom out. How do I zoom out really quickly? And third and five, third, third and five means this most of the time. And 80% of this is going to be this. So how do I get 100% of me aimed at the 20% that's going to be different about this play? And it's a function of exposure and rehearsal and exposure and rehearsal and exposure and rehearsal, right? In an uncontained environment, right? In a wicked environment. I love that. Exposure, rehearsal in a wicked environment. That's yeah. sweet. That's a t-shirt, man. Yeah. I mean, that's, you've been to our facility. That's why we created our facility. The way we created it is, you know, we create this, I, I, don't, I don't like the term scenario-driven training. For me, scenarios can be overly specific. And so if you overtrain for a particular scenario, you're in some ways training for failure for any deviation out of that particular scenario. So I like training in circumstance-driven. I call it circumstance-driven training. So inside the left and right, anything inside that, right? So low light is a circumstance. So if I, if I train you to, if I work with you on moving confidently, shoot, move, communicate in a low light environment, Really, anything inside that low light environment, inside those left and right limits, you should be able to adapt to. This is where Nassim Taleb talks about in you know, the Black Swan, where he talks about you know, chaos theory implications. And the one thing we're overly confident of it in is our, our ability to project, right? Like organizations spend a million dollars figuring out what left-handed people do when they're scared. And because he's left-handed, when he gets scared, he's going to do this. I'm like, hey, give me a million dollars and I'm going to replicate the environment we're going to work in. Because the environment's going to impose realities. That person can either go, whether he's left-handed or right-handed, he can either go left, right, backwards, forwards when we hit that door. So I would rather rehearse for all four of those things that have, where realities impose these responses on them, right? So that's why I love, and that's why I love the chaos. You know, football taught me a lot. Like, just get the guy down. I, you know, Mr. Sidelines never missed a tackle. If I can get him right. the sidelines, then, then, you know, I had a lot of assisted tackles with Mr. Sidelines. You you just brought up something very interesting. Uh, Nassim Taleb is somebody that I I really admire his thinking. He's amazing. And uh, I actually had this post on Instagram about you know his three biggest addictions: heroin, carbohydrates, and a monthly income. <laughs> and so, you know, COVID. I wouldn't call it a black swan because it ha- it's happened in history, but I think we we were definitely not prepared for any of this. So. How is your organization, how are you pivoting? How are you bulletproofing yourself to this environment? What have you learned from COVID? 
Yeah, so bullet, I, I prefer the term bullet resistant. Bullet resistant, okay. <laughs> Bulletproof isn't real. And, and technically, a, a missile is a bullet. It's just a really big one. So there's no, Okay. So bullet resistant. Uh, a bullet Can I reverse. steal that? Yeah, yeah. Bullet resistant. I'm bullet averse is, is what I like to say. So um, so for me, I, I think in some ways I was kind of advantaged for situations like this because I have this aversion to easy, almost a pathological. I got to work on it. Right. So easy is an ambush. And so when something's easy, it typically means I'm missing something or I'm not trying hard enough. And I can take that to unhealthy levels, right? Making things hard just because I know I can do hard. I had a really great conversation with a friend we have in common. I said, man, don't make stuff hard just because you know you can do hard, right? So create chaos because we know we can operate inside chaos, right? So for me, there's a distinction I've had. So I like the word easier. Like if it's an easy button, it's a detonator. Easier means you're doing something worthwhile and it's easier for you than others, right? And so, and that keeps me from like making things harder than they're supposed to be. But because I'm used to adversity and challenge, the ability to spin into something different is, is, is pretty quick. So then to go, hey, I know this isn't going to work anymore. What can I do that does? That's why working within circumstances instead of scenarios has been really helpful to me. Because again, in that book range, he talks about the difference between tactics and strategy. And have a strategic mind is to be able to kind of think abstractly and look at what's going on around you and just assemble this new way to do things. Kind of like a MacGyver, you know, mental MacGyver in some ways. Yes. Which is another great show from the 80s, by the way. That Swiss Army knife is amazing. That's right. A gum wrapper, a blade of glass, and a Swiss Army knife. Is that all you took into the field when you were an operator? I, sometimes, sometimes it was just a toothpick. <laughs> toothpick, toothpick and a wrestling singlet. That's it. I love it, man. I love it. Toothpick and we got this. You you were uh, terrorizing the terrorists, I'm sure, then. Anybody who sees me in a singlet is going to be like, oh, oh, that's terrifying. That's terrifying. (laughs) Let's take a step back here for a second. So you you had some time in the the league, and then you did something most people would consider completely insane. And the fact that we weren't in wartime when you decided to go into naval special warfare. Was that planted? Was that seed inside? And you're like, I'm going to do that. And did you just be like, listen, I know that the NFL is here, but this is what I want to do. Like, talk about that. I was, I was really fortunate coming out of the Naval Academy to receive a billet. I mean, it's a very, very competitive uh, occupation. And a lot of people go to the Naval Academy to try to become that. And so to, to receive one of 16 opportunities to become a, a, a SEAL is really a huge honor. And this was pre 9 11, this is 1997, and I'd been picked up by the Ravens. And so I remember being at the Baltimore Ravens and, and watching Ray. There was, there was a time in practice where I was just like, man, it might be easy to become a SEAL and beat out Ray Lewis. And he, was, <laughs> he, was, he was ascending into his rayness. Um, yes. And it was really cool to watch. But I remember I, I watched the guy get hurt at practice. And the academy was, I mean, the policy at the time was go and play. And if you make your team, you then leave, get your warfare, and then you can come back out two years later, right? And so the academy was real supportive at the time. And and you look at what David Robinson has done, you know, and Roger Staubach and Chad Hennings and, and some of these people that really achieved some really amazing things, you know, a villain Weva at the, at the Steelers right now. And so, but I do remember being in practice one day and watching a guy get hurt. And I just had this moment where I was like, what can I live without? Huh. You know, I've drunk deeply from the well of football and I've, I've learned a lot about the game and, and, and given as much as I could to the game. And, and I just kind of feel called to go where I don't know. So I remember going home and I just got married and I was telling my wife, I was like, babe, if I got hurt and couldn't pursue becoming a SEAL, I, I, it would be the question 
I wonder about for the rest of my life, right? And, and if I'd made it in the league and played a long time in the league, it would have just been another chapter and a great story that I, that I love. So for me to uh, leave was, was really kind of easy. The game is an adventure, but wasn't a, a mystery, right? And you kind of got to go where the mystery is. The mission is where the mystery is most of the time for me. So left and, and made it through training, came back out briefly to the Saints in 1999. And kind of remembered why I left and, and just wanted to get back into the teams and, and uh, deploy and work with these amazing men and women that I had an opportunity to work with. I did not know that. So you went through Buds. You Yeah. So Ravens, Buds, SEAL Team 5, Saints, SEAL Team 5. Wow. I didn't know you could even do that. Well, yeah, it was, it was, pretty, it was pretty interesting. So what did you learn about yourself when you went through Buds? Or is it, did it not really, te- did you just kind of reveal what you already knew? No, see, I love that second part of the question. Because when I answer that question, a lot of times, it's not what people think I'm going to say. Hey, what did you learn in the SEAL teams? Well, the TTPs, the tactics, and yeah, I mean, I learned a lot about how to be a SEAL. But from the, I mean, that's where I learned it, right? I obviously learned how to be this thing, but I didn't, you know, when people go, what did you learn in SEAL teams? I'm like, nothing. What I learned was everybody who loved me that had been telling me the truth was right. And so for me, the experience in the SEAL teams was a proving ground. It was, it was this coach plus this friend's dad plus this friend's mom plus this teacher plus this professor. I mean, for me, it was a proving ground. So what I learned was everybody who loved me was telling me the truth. They didn't want to, don't want to hear it, that they were right. And, and it was this massive validation of the people I'd chosen to be around and learn from and, and, and chase, you know, most of my life. Mm-hmm. How long were you in the teams? It's about seven years. Wow. Seven, yeah, yeah. I was fortunate, man. I did three deployments uh, as an officer. Most of the time, you kind of only get two with a platoon. I was, I, I had the opportunity to do three, which I was super grateful for. And man, I got to just be around lions every day. I mean, it was amazing. Like, I put myself in the upper half of the bottom third. Of, of, I mean, like, I was just trying to keep up, trying to keep up with these amazing men and and. Um, and that's it. Like that's part of the tribe is pick a hard tribe and then try to keep up with them. Right. Mm. Um, and if you're the leader of the pack, then you're not in a strong enough pack. Right. And I think leadership is this fluid crown that everybody wears at some point in time. Right. But you want to be, you know, you want to be, I call it chase, pace and pull. You got to be chasing someone. You got to be running hard with people that you want to keep pace with and they want to keep pace with you. And you got to be pulling someone behind you because if you don't, you're going to have to do this thing, whatever it is for longer than you love it or longer than you're good at it. And both of those are a disservice to the it, right? So for me, you know, the teams was pretty amazing. And to be in the teams when I was, was a, you know, pre 9-11 and post 9-11 for the few years after that, it was pretty remarkable. I'm, the, the men I call brothers now and their families, I mean, they're, they're absolute legends in the, in the special operations community. So I count myself very fortunate. Wow. Um, now, so you, you transition out of the teams mm-hmm. and, and boy, do you have your hands in quite a few things. Let's start with not, let's start with carry the load. Yeah. Carry the load's amazing. <laughs> so when I, when I transitioned out, you know, my, my, my bride had had her first daughter and um, you know, I was looking around at the, at the teams at all these people that were just amazing. Right. And, 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 the, and the machines built out last year, but, uh, went into wealth management and very quickly became the worst wealth management advisor in Dallas tech and maybe America. I was, I was really bad. <laughs> I was in Dallas. I'm going to go, Hey, can I manage your wealth? And they go, no. Well, I'm like, well, I don't want to manage your stupid wealth anyway. <laughs> you know, I had some anger issues. 
or I'm, I'm, I'm honest. So I'd sit down and go, Hey, can I manage your wealth? And they go, are you better than my person? I'm like, well, who's your person? They tell me, I'm like, no, <laughs> go, that's way better. Right. <laughs> She's way better than me. Um, then Katrina happened when it Katrina pulled a bunch of people out and had uh, all these people that were rightly saying, don't manage my wealth or then going, Hey, can you advise me and my family and my business on risk, which is very natural. It's a very seamless transition coming out of special operations community to be able to do that. But I was also really struggling with just this gap between what was happening on the military side of things and how the nation was largely not acting like anything was happening. And, and I felt that most acutely on Memorial Day. And I remember I just really struggled with that because my calculus was this. My friends thought you were worth dying for and they didn't know you. And when you don't miss them on the one day you're supposed to, even though you didn't know them, it makes them dying for you not make sense to me. And I need that to make sense to me. And so the carry load story really begins at a great friend's house who hadn't served. And, you know, listen, I, I think service is relative. I mean, I, I think that um, there are people with long careers in the military that didn't work as hard as an inner city school teacher for the same amount of time. And I'm not diminishing military service. I'm just broadening the aperture of what service really is. And uh, I was at this barbecue and, and my bride told me I was I was kind of intimidating. Like I was just sitting in a corner, had my arms crossed, wasn't talking to anybody. I've got this big beard and tattoos and stuff. And, and she kind of grabbed me and pulled me inside the house. She goes, listen, I love you and I miss them. And I know you hate this. And she just kind of gestured to the weekend. But she said, I've never known you to not do something about the things you disagree with. So do something or get over it. And so I went and I put a pound in a, uh, for every friend that I'd lost in a pack. And I just started walking. And, you know, I, I was walking around Warwick Lake here in Dallas and I saw this older gentleman and he just appeared to me to be a World War II veteran. And he just ramrod straight. He was the right, you know, age and, and just had this kind of bearing and this pride in him. And I was going to say something to him, but actually said something to me first. As I got up to him, he looked at me and he said, son. And I said, yes, sir. He said, who are you carrying? And man, it just floored me. It just, uh, it flattened me. And and I shared with him the name of a friend that I was thinking about at the time and, and, and finished going on Rock Rock Lake and shared that with my bride. And then I just started doing that every Memorial Day. I just put on weight and go. And I just add a pound for, you know, and that weight was going to grow every year. And I knew that. I knew that the load was going to get heavier every year. And I, and I didn't want to miss the pain. And it's not about pain for pain's sake. It's just good pain pushes out bad pain. And... What was really neat is, is really the first people that really helped bring Carrie Little alive were folks that hadn't served. They were just great American citizens that were like, listen, I desperately want to do Memorial Day better. What do you want to do? So we just started walking. And that's turned into this amazing movement that, that a dear friend of mine, Stephen Holly, now runs. And uh, I think distributed $25 million over the last 10 years to existing nonprofits. And we took the force multiplier model that we have in the special operations community. So our job is to make your two a 10, right? And in the philanthropic community, a lot of times the most passionate and capable person is the founder. And the founder is either on the X solving the problem or they're peeled off trying to get resources. And you want your problem solver where the problem is. So our deal is like drive resources to where if you have a great sniper, the worst thing you can do is make them come down and get bullets. Like you take them bullets, keep them up there, keep them doped in where they're, where they're making the shots, right? And so for us to use the attention and, and visibility we kind of naturally got as former special operations guys and redistribute that to these amazing uh, men and women who are solving problems for first responders and veterans. It was really cool. And it's, and it's neat to see it still going What Steven and Debbie and the team have done with it uh, since I retired from it is incredible. You know, I'm, I'm much more of an invasion guy than an 
So once is there an, an occupation guy, once, is that what you said? Yeah, once there's an Excel spreadsheet, I'm like, nah. <laughs> that from major pain? But Colonel, there's got to be someone needs to kill it. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> it's a great movie. If anybody hasn't seen that, major pain, Damon Wayans. But yeah, Carrie Little's been amazing. And, you know, I was out there this year. You know, the march, we go from Seattle to Dallas, West Point to Dallas. And then we had a mountain, they had a mountain relay and a Midwest relay. So, you know, there's four national relays going 24 seven and every five miles we'll walk on with the family of somebody's lost someone. And uh, it's pretty magic. It's pretty magic to just kind of walk into someone and go, Hey, who are you carrying? And then just listen, you know, like, I lost my father when I was young. And to this day, when someone remembers my father, I become this 18 year old kid again. And, uh, to, you know, look someone in the eye and go, Hey, no one's going to forget your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, your son, your daughter. That's important, and and I love that that's being done. Wow, I'm yeah. sorry, I'm a little speechless right now. No, uh, it's, it's it's pretty powerful. Now, I I mean, I've known this story, and my mom, her her company still gives yeah. to yeah, every, yeah, every 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 uh, thing of freaking awesome that's sold. Oh, it's awesome. It's amazing. That's unbelievable, man. I want to tap into something here real quick. Uh, one of the things that you and I share in common, that's probably the most enduring thing is our faith. Mm-hmm. And we're in a time right now, you know, biggest financial crisis since the Great Depression, a lot of division in our country over social injustice. Mm-hmm. How are you living out your faith and, and relying on that in this just unbelievable time? Yeah, <clears throat> I, was, I, was, I did this. um this kind of a symposium and it was really interesting. I was hoping there were some very, very senior executives from Chase Bank. The guy who interviewed me goes, I, I kind of said, Hey, here's my entrepreneurial, my business plan is first Peter five, six and seven Galatians six, nine Proverbs 22, 29 and Proverbs 27, two. So first Peter five, six and seven is do not put on errors. God will promote you in his due time. He's very careful for you. Galatians six, nine is do not go where you're doing what's right. And a time we reap a harvest and a benefit. Proverbs twenty two twenty nine is you see a man excellent in his work and not speak for small men, not speak for kings. And Proverbs twenty seven two is let no one boast for himself for a stranger's lips and not his own. So my business model is don't sweat it, do work, be excellent, shut up, right? And he, and he kind of thought it was really funny, but he goes, how does your faith help you in business? I said, he goes, how does it impact your business? I said, I said honestly, it makes things harder. My faith makes things harder because I've got to do things the harder way. I've got to take care of people before I take care of myself. I've got to do these things that our faith calls us to do. And it'd be much easier to just be a heathen, just to be a straight savage, right? If I was a straight savage with no kind of moral uh, guidance, I mean, I could get away with a lot, especially with, you know, our training. I mean, I tell people, hey, we're bad guys. We're just your bad guys in the special Uh operations community, right? So I think the beautiful thing about faith is faith makes are hard times easier because you know what you don't have to know. And you know that all you got to do is kind of go back to the fundamentals and trust that when I pray, I say, God, thanks for being God. So I don't have to be, cause I'm a horrible God. Like when I become God in my life, it is bad. It is like Zeus has got nothing on me. Like just, just, just horrible. Right. So when I'm, when I'm off the, when I'm off the throne, things are typically better. So yeah, faith, my, our faith is the thing that, that kind of, helps us be built for moments like this. Right. Hmm. And, you know, to, 
to be able to retreat into faith and, and it's where stoicism, I think, and, and faith are pretty complementary in that, you know, what stoicism effectively says, all you do is all you do. So once you figure out what all you can do is, then you just got to trust the rest to something else. Right. And, right. and what you and I, we don't trust the rest to a big bang or a multiverse theory. I mean, like at some point in time, and I, I love having these creation versus evolution debates. I'm like, where'd that come from? Where'd that come from? Okay, where'd that come from? We just casually toss out, you know, entropy. Entropy is a law until you apply it to, you know, humans. And uh, so I was like, where'd that come from? So at some point in time, everybody's got faith. Everybody has faith in the thing they can't see and don't understand. And I just find that pride is the reason that you wouldn't say it's God. Mm. And pride cometh before the fall. No question. I've really, you know, I've, I was fortunate to grow up in a home where it was very important. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and understood. And I mean, your, your parents, you know, your father's one of the most curious guys I've ever known. So I, I don't know that you could come up with a question in your head that he hadn't already wrestled with and has a card trick about. And, and you know, and, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I mean, what a, what a blessing that was to, to grow up in a, in a place where the hard questions were asked and researched and, and fully investigated. Right. Yes. And now I have kids of my own and those same questions come up. Yeah. And uh, my son is, is just one of my sons. My oldest son is just like me mm-hmm. in the sense that his mind is always going. Yeah. He's, in a cre- he's a creator. He's very, he's very artistic, kind of an engineer type. And he's always asking these very difficult <laughs> questions. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the middle son is just like, uh, he just wants to go take the hill. Yeah. You know, and the older son's yeah. like, but why are we taking the hill? Why don't we do it this way? I'll answer you when we get there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Let's talk about TRG, hold fast and windage. Like, yeah. dude, you're doing three things at one time here. Kind of. And that's really one of the reasons I retired from Carry the Load is I was just making mistakes. Huh. And I was making the mistakes that you make when you try to do too much. And, and I, you know, faithful to the wounds of a friend. I have some friends that love me. They're just like, hey, man, are you performing to your standards in these other things? And, and there were some blind spots. Like, I, just, I don't know that I understood the toll. It took on Amy and the girls for me to be gone as much as I was, and and it, it was it was a it was a challenging season, and, and I'm and I love them for saying, hey, can anybody else do this, right? And that's one of the things that you learn in football and you learn in the military is everybody's built to do it, right? It's it shouldn't come down to just you, and so for me, I, I kind of have this entrepreneurial bend, right? I love starting things and I love solving problems, and it just felt like chaos when I drew this little org chart of everything I was doing. And I remember sitting at this, I was, in my other office, I have this 360 whiteboard room. And I was like, this is stupid. I'm like, I'm, none of this makes sense. But there was a part of me that just wouldn't go up and erase anything. And I was, I was interested in that. I was interested in like, why am I having such a hard time erasing this? And then finally, I walked up there and I wrote something above all these circles. And I said, um, work for and with the best leaders in America, create amazing careers for veterans and athletes as they transition, win the war on veteran and athlete suicide with the power of daily wins and a good day's work. And I drew a circle around that. Then I went and I sat down and all of a sudden it just looked like positions on the field. So, so now it looked like a football team. Uh-huh. So all these, all these games, all these companies ended up just being positions on a field. You know, TRG is a linebacker. Uh, windage is a safety, uh, hold fast is a D line, right? And all of a sudden, it seems like a lot to realize they're just different positions on the field trying to produce the same outcome, which is more successful transitions for veterans and athletes and their families. And 
you know, veteran suicide is, is, is an enormous problem and the, and the problem's larger than most people know it to be. And so you go, hey, wh- what, what can I do about that? What can one person do about that, right? Well, the answer is something. And then you just got to figure out what your something is, right? And so for me, as a guy who transitioned as both an athlete and as an operator, and frankly, is still transitioning in a lot of ways, what I know and what I've learned about the brain, you know, here at the Center for Brain Health and Brain Performance Institute, University of Texas, Dallas, and some of the amazing stuff that's coming out of Yurton Wharton's Neuroscience Institute and, and the Huberman Lab over at Stanford is there's an element of that for, for me that is, is wiring. It's, you know, until I was in my early 30s, and you being on the science side of this, until I was in my early 30s, I had this feedback loop, right? And I very rarely had to wait longer than, as a football player, seconds to, to get a feedback loop. Like, you have these horizons. The way I described it the other day is, you know, we come out of athletics or military service, and we've always had this horizon. It's like being on a low-level flight, right? Then all of a sudden, transition, we're in this fog bank, and we don't have a horizon. There's no artificial horizon. There's no metric that says, hey, you were worth it today, right? And in business, the hardest thing I've ever done is business because in business, you had to wait maybe years to figure out that the thing you did last Tuesday was the right thing to do. It's just, says, it's like a, it's gardening and it takes a really long time. So we have, we don't have that feedback. We don't have that horizon to tell us where we are and what we did is worthwhile. So for me to come up with a system that is really clear, hey, this is a daily win. And you do these many daily wins, and that was a good day's work, right? So, hey, did someone who was scared leave the ready lab going, hey, I feel confident. That's a win. Did someone that you visit with decide they could do something that they didn't think they could earlier? That's a win, right? And we're used to a scorecard, right? So if you're in a fog bank without that horizon, you're, you're not going to make it. So the artificial horizon, for me, daily wins and a good day's work is an artificial horizon, of an instrument panel, until our brains can wrap themselves around the feedback system that exists in the private sector, which is much slower, right? So it's kind of like fake it till you make it as long as you mean it in a way. No, know? I'm with you. I've, I've, I've been venturing into some entrepreneurial stuff that you know I've been talking about for the past about year. Yeah. And it is hard because you're not going to make money immediately. Oh, and, no. uh, and we're, we're used to in football, especially like you get judged every Saturday or Sunday in front of the whole world. Well, think about this. You, you talk, talk about horizons and feedback loops. As a player, you get a feedback loop every seven seconds. And then you go to the sidelines after a series and your position coach gives you a feedback loop. And then you go in at halftime and your coordinator gives you a feedback loop. And after the game, the head coach gives you a feedback loop. And then the next day you read it in the paper and the next day you watch film. So our brains are used to going, I did this and it produced this. Therefore, I am worth this, right? And then certainly in the military, it's the same. Sometimes it's a little more delayed. Sometimes you have you know, it's, it's a night or a week or a month, but it's never very long, you know. And then all of a sudden you hit the private sector and there's no, there's no feedback loop unless you create it for yourself. And if you're waiting on profitability to be the feedback loop, you're going to be waiting a really long time. And I did. That was part of my struggle was I, I envisioned myself as a protector and a provider. And then, you know, I'm not needed as a protector because we have great first responders, right? And then I was struggling as a provider. And I'm like going, well, what value do I bring to anyone around me, right? And so if we can jam in these value feedback loops, I mean, it's a pretty cool thing. 
when when some of the guys here, you know, they work with a family who had a kind of a maybe a traumatic experience that they were afraid and in 45 minutes, you know, that that spouse is going, hey, I can take care of myself and my family. I mean, that's a that's a big deal. And uh, so I love creating companies that provide fast feedback loops for the, the provider and, and a high degree of satisfaction from the consumer. And so if you look at TRG, I love helping, I love helping leaders feel ready to protect, perform, compete, and recover. So TRG is protect, hold fast is perform, Windows is compete and recover. I love that. Protect, perform, repeat. Okay. I love it. Protect, perform, compete. And, and what I try to do, so if you look at Dreadnought, the holding company is like an iPhone. These companies are just apps, right? Aim small, miss small distributions of a veteran athlete's hard skills, soft skills, and experiences. Dude, you are... You are one of a kind when it comes to words. I mean, you are a, you are a, a, a poet, scholar, warrior. I'm chunky. I had to be funny, dude. Like, you, chunky guys, chunky guys got to be quick. We got to we got to be good with our <laughs> be good with our words. All right, last question for you: What rabbit hole are you going down right now that just got has got you excited, got your brain stimulated? Because you and I are similar. Yeah. Like we we have yeah. to have something that's stimulating us. Yeah. So one of the things I'm loving doing right now is really understanding how to create peak efficiency in those veins as far as protect, perform, compete, recover, and to show, so how do we weave kind of biofeedback into this concept called personal readiness, right? So looking with, you know, heart rate variability or wearable EGs where you can, because at the end of the day, when you're training someone to protect themselves, the only real absolute feedback that they've learned something is if they ever have to apply it. Well, I don't actually want anybody to ever have to apply the things we teach them here. So how do we increase confidence, right? Because, you know, as a consumer, you want to know that this is worthwhile. So either you just feel better about it or you actually had to do it one day. And there's, there's this gray area in between there that I think we can support with quantifiable measures. So, so, for instance, if I put you up in the ready lab and I put you in a high risk circumstance and teach you how to box breathe or teach you how to do these things that we do to kind of ground ourselves or center ourselves, and all of a sudden you see your heart rate variability or your watching your brain migrate to alpha theta, which is, you know, what would be the flow state and stuff like that. Now technology is making us, it's, it's what Orange Theory did. You know, Orange Theory basically gave someone a visual of their heart rate. So now they're associating this level with this feeling, right? And think about being able to do that from a confidence perspective to be able to go like, hey, I know when I do this, my heart rate stays this and, and, and sort of how do I take these metrics that I enjoyed as, a, as an athlete and put them in this space where people can see the evidence of their growth and ability to apply the skill that ideally they'll never have to, right? So it's interesting. It's interesting to go like, hey, you, you know, we talk about when you and I were growing up, it was called the zone, right? And, and then it was, you know, Michak called it the flow, which is really great. And now I think the kids call it vibing now. I don't know. I don't know it's vibing. <laughs> but it, it's what it is. It's all the same thing. It's like that. And it's, you know, it's marked by stir, you know, selflessness, timelessness, effortlessness, and richness. And how do you, let a soccer mom enjoy the same confidence a rock climber has on a, you know, a 510, right? And, and it's getting to know our brains and our bodies and how those works. And that's where it comes back to our faith. You know, the mastery that put us together, it's, it's amazing, right? And you look at what science still can't do. Like, here's what we know about the brain. We're beginning to begin to understand what we don't know. If you enjoyed today's episode, then do me a favor and go to your smartphone and take a screenshot of the cover art for this episode and share it with a friend and then post it on social media and at me. I'd love to know what you enjoyed about this episode. 
Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you on the next show.